Hi, this is Pastor Curtis. I want to thank you for checking out the Family Church Podcast. I hope it encourages you and inspires you to take your next step of faith. You can find out more about how to do that at our website, familychurch.xyz. And if you know a friend who needs to hear this message, please forward it on to them. I hope you enjoy the message. Welcome to uh, what is this, week four or five of the book of James. Uh, you know, the reason that we chose this, you know, because there's obviously a lot of different books we could have chose, but uh, one of the reasons that we chose the book of James to go through uh, is because of how practical it is. In fact, James isn't just practical, it's uh, painfully practical, um, as, as we've seen time and time again thus far in our study. J- James had, how many of you know James has no problem whatsoever keeping it real when it comes to addressing some of these things in our lives, things that are working against God's plan and purpose for our life. I shared in week one of the series how Natalie Patton, our family kids director, when she found out that we were going to be going through the book of James, uh, she, she made this comment. I thought it was very telling. She said, she said, when reading the book of James, she says, I like reading the book of James because it's a reality check for me, a reality check. Well, that reality check is probably most evident in the first 12 verses of the chapter we're going to be looking at today, James chapter 3. So are you ready to have a reality check? Put your seatbelts on. Let's have a reality check. And I want to begin this morning's message with a question, a Bible trivia question, since this is going to be kind of a, a hard message. Let's kind of uh, begin with a little lighthearted uh, trivia question. Which Old Testament sin does God call out more than any other? What do you think? Which Old Testament sin do you think God calls out more than any other? Now, if you've read James chapter 3, you probably already know this. You could probably figure it out. But what do you think? You think it's adultery? You think it's lust? You think it's idolatry, uh, gluttony, excessive drinking, breaking the Sabbath? What do you think it is? Speaking against others. Slander. Slander. Speaking against others and speaking against God. Now, at first, I I saw that and I kind of wanted to push back on it because I I didn't take the time to research it. I have no reason to doubt whoever wrote that, that they were lying about it. But but it does, I mean, wasn't that kind of surprising to you? I, I wouldn't have guessed that. But when you look at what Jesus said and taught about our tongue and the words that we speak, I think this is clear. It's very clear that this is something God takes very seriously and probably something that all of us need to take more seriously as well because the truth is most of our problems relate to our tongue. All right, come on, you think about it. Most of our problems relate to our tongue. Here's why. The easiest way to sin is with your tongue. All right, easiest way to sin is with your tongue. Because you can say anything you want. You know, there aren't any restraints. You know, there are some sins, you know, that, you know, that, that, you know, maybe you would like to do, but you can't because, you know, there's a lot of sins of opportunity, right? But with your tongue, man, you can sin any place, any time, right? Doesn't doesn't matter what the circumstances are. Because you can say absolutely anything. Time and time again, the Bible refers directly or indirectly to the depravity of our tongue, among other things. Among other things, the Bible mentions, and see if you don't find yourself in any of these descriptions. The Bible describes the tongue as a wicked tongue, a deceitful tongue, a lying tongue, a perverse tongue, a filthy tongue, a corrupt tongue, a bitter tongue, an angry tongue, a crafty tongue, a flattering tongue, a slanderous tongue, a gossiping tongue, a backbiting tongue, a blaspheming tongue, a foolish tongue, a boasting tongue, a murmuring tongue, a complaining tongue, a cursing tongue, a contentious tongue, a sensual tongue, a vile tongue a tail-bearing tongue, a whispering tongue, an exaggerating tongue. Do I need to keep going? Did you find yourself in any of those? Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? 
Aren't you so glad you came to church this morning? No wonder God put our tongue in a cage behind our teeth, walled in by our mouth. So let's dive in here. Let's have a reality check. James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. This is kind of an obvious point. James is saying that teachers, preachers, people who speak publicly uh, will naturally have a greater opportunity, a larger platform to use their tongue either in a positive or negative way. So therefore, they're going to be held more accountable. But watch this next statement closely. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is what? Perfect. Perfect. Able to keep their whole body in check. That, dear ones, is an amazing statement. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect. Does he mean, all right, let's talk about this for a second. Does he mean perfect in the sense of absolutely perfect like Jesus Christ? Because if that's the case, let's go ahead and have the altar call now. Let's come down here, get it over with, and so we can go have lunch, right? If he's talking about perfect like Jesus, well, I guess, you know, we're all doomed to eventually wreck our lives with our tongue since the only perfect person who ever lived was Jesus. Or, or is James talking about perfection in the sense of maturity? That, that if a person weighs carefully the words that they speak and doesn't continue to stumble with their mouth, that that person has reached a level of spiritual maturity. Now, unfortunately, this is one of those places, one of the few areas in the New Testament where the Greek language doesn't really help us out that much, since the word that James used here, teleos, would be the Greek transliteration, it could be used to define either one of those. It could be, it could used to be defined perfection or maturity. So here's what I decided. This is what I landed on. For the sake of our study, let's interpret teleos, perfect, this way. Let, let's just take them both. Let's just take them both, right? In which case, James would be saying that one sign of spiritual maturity is when you have control of your tongue, right? And even though we'll never be perfect in this life, if we strive for that, if we'll reach for it, we'll grow and mature along the way, and that maturity will help us control our tongue. Does that make sense? Two of you think that makes sense. When I was a little kid, medicine wasn't as specialized as it is today. Some of you young pups might not know this, but, you know, there was a time when you went to a doctor's appointment, you'd actually get to see the doctor. (laughs) That's right. And the very first thing that Dr. Clark would say to me, he would say, okay, now, son, open up your mouth and let me see your tongue. Anyone old enough remember that? that, I mean, you know, they they would get to the blood, today, you know, it's the blood pressure thing, you know, and they they would do that too. But back in the day, I I don't know what kind of wisdom he was trying to glean from my tongue. But he would say, all right, young boy, young man, open up your mouth and let me see your tongue. And then the nurse would come over and put the thermostat, uh, thermometer under my uh, tongue. Uh, but that's the first thing that they would do. That's what James is saying here. James chapter 3, he's saying, let me see your tongue. Open up, say ah. I want to see your tongue. I, 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 want, to take your, I, I want to take your spiritual temperature. I want to take your spiritual temperature. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to take our spiritual temperature by looking at our tongue. In this passage, James tells us four amazing things about our tongue that reveal three powerful truths about the words we speak. So, four amazing things about your tongue. Here we go. First one, the tongue is disproportionately powerful. The tongue is disproportionately powerful. Now, I could have said the tongue is powerful, and that would be true. 
But James' point here isn't that our tongue is powerful. James is trying to help us see how disproportionately powerful our tongue is. In other words, it's very small, but its effect is very large. And he uses three examples to illustrate how disproportionately powerful our tongue is. Verse 3, Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. First example James uses here about the disproportionate power of our tongue is a horse's bit. Now, how do you control a horse? You control a horse by controlling his tongue. You put a piece of metal in the horse's mouth, it lays on its tongue, and then you put a harness around that and you pull over its head, and then you take the reins, and however you, you know, you basically direct the horse with those reins that are attached to, that are tied to the bit. So if you get control of the tongue, you can direct the, 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 the whole body of the horse. I rode a horse once in my life, one time. It was not a good experience. In fact, I, I'm, I'm traumatized just thinking about it, so I'm not going to talk any more about it. But since, since my knowledge of horses was so limited, I took the liberty of asking someone who had a little more experience with horses. Uh, last week, knowing that I was going to be preaching on this this week, I asked Cindy and Maxwell Hain what they could tell me about a horse's bit and how it works. Now, Cindy, I don't know how old is Maxwell. She's been riding a horse for, she's not very old, but she's been riding. And it was so funny because, you know, Maxwell's a, a, a woman of few words, you know. But last Sunday when I brought up this thing about it, her mom was standing there and I was telling her, I was asking about the horse's bit. And I, she said, well, ask Maxwell. And I asked her, man, she just, well, you know, you put the horse's bit and she just came alive. I mean, that was, that's her lane, you know. So, so I wanted to get some expert's opinion on this. And I asked about, I said, tell me a little bit about the, the, the horse's bit. I mean, is there anything, any kind of insights there that could help when I, when I preach this message? And they said basically the same thing that James tells us here. But, but Cindy also pointed out that the rider's direct connection to the horse is through the bit, all right? But, but your hands control everything through the reins that are connected to the bit. But here's the other thing that Cindy said, and I thought this was amazing. Listen to this. She said, you can either destroy or build up a horse's confidence all through the bit all through the bit. You will lose a horse's trust quickly if you misuse or abuse the bit. So James' first analogy in describing the disproportionate power of the tongue is how a small piece of metal laid on a tongue, a horse's tongue, can control that large 1,000 to 1,200 pound animal. The next point of comparison that he uses to describe the disproportionate power of our tongue is the rudder of a large ship. In verse 4, look also at ships although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, and here James references the storms of life that he mentioned back in, in, in chapter 1, verse 6. They are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Now, Sue and I have never been on a cruise before. I, I know many of you have. But think about those large ships. You know, the average or medium-sized cruise ship measures over 1,000 feet in length and can accommodate anywhere between 3,000 and 4,000 passengers. The larger cruise ships can accommodate up to 6,000 people. 6,000 people. And that's, that's like big enough, you know, like people, everyone from Baldwin and Wellsville on the same cruise. That sounds like a good idea. Someone want to book that for us, right? But think about that. You're talking about a massive ship that's over three football fields long and can hold over 6,000 people, yet, yet can be steered by a little device that is about 2% the size of the entire ship. The point being, if something happens to a ship's rudder, that ship will be at the mercy of its environment. And even the weekend, come on, even the weekend boater knows that if you're on the water and a storm comes up, which way you turn the ship? You turn the ship into the storm. You turn into the storm, into the winds, otherwise you'll capsize. Do you realize that many people's lives 
have capsized. Many people's faith becomes shipwrecked because their tongue didn't face them in the right direction when they were going through a storm. And I'm preaching about 87% better than y'all are amen, and that's all I'm saying. All right. So James uses the analogy of a bit. He uses the analogy of a rudder on a ship. And then he uses this third analogy, the analogy of a spark. How just a, a tiny little spark can do such damage. Not just damage, but lasting damage. Verse 5, likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes it great boast. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. One of our family vacations that we went on, I think it was probably the last family vacation that we all went on together. We went to Bozeman, Montana for a few days and then uh, did, did the, uh, the half-day tour of Yellowstone. Get out, look. Okay, let's go. Get out, look. Okay, come on, kids, let's go. All right. So we're, drive, we're driving through Yellowstone and, and just, you know, beautiful mountains, trees, wildflowers, grass, animals, all these animals you only see on the Discovery Channel. And we're driving along, enjoying the scenery, having a blast. And we come up over this ridge, and then all of a sudden, for miles, miles, all you could see were just burnt, charred trees and stumps. And that was from a fire 15 years before that. 15 years before. Nothing but black stumps, charred fields, burnt dead trees sticking up. No animals, no pretty grass, no flowers, because someone carelessly flicked a spark out of a car window and ignited a forest fire. Think about how much beauty and grandeur was wiped out by such a careless act. Again, that was 15 years after the fact. James says, that's how much power your tongue and the words you speak can have. Even though, even though the tongue is a, a little member of the body, it actually controls the whole body. So point number one, the tongue is disproportionately powerful. Point number two, the amazing, second amazing fact about the tongue, it is inherently evil. The tongue is inherently evil. Verse 6, James 3, the tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole courses, course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by, ooh, ooh, tell us what you really mean here, James. Set on fire by hell. Verse 8. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Again, again, here, it, the adverb is what's important because we could just say the tongue is evil, but that's not really the amazing fact here. The amazing fact is it is inherently evil. In other words, in other words we were all born with an evil tongue. We, we, don't have, think about it, we don't have to teach our children to be rude or say mean things. We need to teach them to say nice things, right? Because they were born, they're born, they're, they're born with a tongue that defaults towards evil. It is inherently evil. Let me say it another way. The default setting on the tongue is to destroy. And unless we change that default setting, we're going to do more damage with our tongue than good. That's what James is telling us here. Your, our tongue is inherently evil. How many of you are old enough to remember this line? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. The truth is, for many, a broken bone would have been less painful than the words that were spoken to him. You know, the rabbis had a saying that the tongue was an arrow. The psalmist references this in Psalm 63, excuse me, Psalm 64, verse 3. They sharpen their tongues like swords and aim cruel words like deadly arrows. And the reason they said the tongue was an arrow rather than the tongue was a knife was because an arrow can kill at a distance. 
And the deadliness of the tongue was that it could kill without even being anywhere near the victim. Wow. I mean, does that not describe social media today? People can say anything they want from anywhere in the world. And that arrow just... The tongue is disproportionately powerful. The tongue is inherently evil. Third amazing fact about our tongue. It is humanly untamable. Humanly untamable in verses 7 and 8, James 1. James 1, 7 and 8. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Really? No human being can tame the tongue? Well, that's not good news. That's not good news. But let me tell you what the good news is. It is divinely tameable. The one who made it can tame it. The one who wrote the owner's manual can fix it. Remember the story of how God called Moses to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt and, and Moses balked. He said, I, I, I can't do that. And one reason that he said he couldn't do that because he couldn't speak very well. It's found in Exodus chapter 4. And this is when God spoke to Moses from the burning bush. In Exodus 4 verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Verse 11, the Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it, is it not I, the Lord? Verse 11 again, now go. I will help you speak and I will teach you what to say. Now notice what Moses is saying here. He said, he said I had a problem with my tongue before I got saved, before you called me to do this, and I've got a problem even now, after I've gotten saved, after you've called me to do this. Before I met you and after I met you, I still have a problem with my tongue, God. I can't think of the right words to say, nor do I want to say them in front of people. Many of us probably feel the same way sometimes. But now watch closely what the Lord tells Moses in verse 11. Who made man's mouth? Who made your mouth, Moses? Who makes the mute, the deaf, the seen, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go. Now here's some good news here. And I will be with your mouth and teach you what to say. The tongue is humanly untamable, but it is divinely tameable by the one who created it. So James tells us that the tongue is disproportionately powerful. It is inherently evil. It is humanly untamable. And the fourth amazing fact about our tongue is it is contrastingly productive. Verse 9, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Verses 10 and 11, out of, them, out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. And, and, and part of James' burden and concern comes through in, in this next statement. My brothers and sisters, this shouldn't be. You, you shouldn't be doing this. Can both fresh water, fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? Verse 12, James 3. My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. James is saying, even nature can't do what the tongue can do, right? A fig tree can't bear, can't bear uh, olives and a, a grapevine can't bear figs. Apples don't bear oranges. Oranges don't bear apples. And you can't have bad water and good water coming from the same opening. Because at that point, it's all bad. If there's any bad water, it's all bad. The point being, the power of the tongue cuts both ways. We can, we can bless and we can curse with our tongue. It is contrastingly productive. 
How many of you ever been in a conversation with someone and started to say something, <laughs> and then the, the Holy Spirit checked you mid-sentence? It's like, oh. And it gets a little awkward because you don't know, you, know, you try to figure it out, you know, try an ex- exit strategy out of that, right? No, seriously, how many of you ever started to say something and the Holy Yeah, probably would be better off not saying that. Probably more times than not, we went ahead and said it, didn't we? Yeah. James says, this shouldn't be. This shouldn't be. You, you shouldn't. You could. You know, shouldn't be coming in here praising Jesus on on you know on Sunday morning and then that afternoon, you know, see someone that you hadn't seen in a while that that hurt you and then you know, say something bad about him. James says this shouldn't be. This shouldn't be. So, in giving us these four amazing facts about our tongue, James reveals three powerful truths about the words we speak. The first powerful truth about the words we speak: my words determine the direction of my life. My words determine the direction of my life. And again, he used the, the example of, of a bit controlling the horse, of the rudder used to direct a large ship, and how a small spark can lead to massive destruction. In other words, we shape our words, and then our words shape us. We shape our words, and then our words shape us. Second, truth. my words can destroy what I have. My words can destroy. My words determine the direction of my life. My words can destroy what I have. Words can destroy your family, your marriage, your career. Just in the past few months, and if you follow sports at all, you know this, just in the past few months alone, we've seen the announcers for the Oakland A's, the Baltimore Orioles, and the Cincinnati Reds, and the Sacramento Kings basketball team all lost their jobs because of the careless or thoughtless statement they made while on the air. We saw it here in Kansas City a few years ago. Number one afternoon drive uh, between the lines, Kevin Keatsman made a comment about Andy Reid's family. That was it. His career's totally over. Everything he worked for, for years, gone in an instant because of his mouth, a statement he made. Sort of like uh, a small spark setting a forest on fire, isn't it? But the scary thing about our tongue is not just the trouble it can get us into in the moment. Even scarier is the trouble our tongue can get us into from words that we've spoken in the past. Has that ever happened to anyone? You said something at some point in your past and then it came back to bite you? A few years ago, a man lived in London, England. This is an amazing story. A guy in London, England turned on his television and happened to see a half-hour program that came out of the state of Texas. Remember, he's in London, England. And this program came out of the state of Texas. He was so curious about the program that he called the station and told, and, and this is what they told him. This is amazing. They said that the program that he watched had actually been broadcast there three years earlier. The only explanation that they had that made any sense as to how he picked it up on his television was the fact that scientifically, once something goes out into the airwaves, it stays there forever. And somehow it found its way back to his receiver again. Scientists say that the sound waves set in motion by every voice, by every voice, go on, go on an endless journey through space. And if we ever had the right instruments and the power to recapture those waves, we could recreate every word every person has ever spoken. That's kind of frightening, isn't it? Can I tell you, dear ones, God has that machine. God has that capacity. And so, so there's a real sense in which men's words will be the basis of their judgment because they are the absolutely accurate judge of our soul. A man's heart is the storehouse, and his words indicate what's stored in there. Matthew 12, 37, for by your words 
you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. And if you doubt this, if you doubt that at all, pay attention over the next few months as we move into the election year. Watch closely how many political careers have crashed and burned because of some words a candidate spoke 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and all of a sudden it come back up. That's why Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, said in Proverbs 10, 19, too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible and keep your mouth shut. James put it this way back in chapter 1, James 1, verse 19. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. See, folks, there's a reason why God gave us two ears and only one mouth. Maybe we should be listening twice as much as we speak. But when it comes to our tongue, and Jesus made this point as well, when it comes to the words we speak, the real problem isn't our tongue, it's our heart. It's a heart issue. Luke 6, 45, what you say flows from what is in your heart. In other words, my words always reveal my heart. I'm going to say that again. My words always reveal my heart. As I was praying about this message and its application to my life, I was thinking about probably the greatest example of, of the power of the tongue to, to bring life. Because, yeah, we, we talked about how it can destroy. But, you know, it is contrastingly productive, James says. In other words, it can, bring, it can have the opposite effect. It can bring death, but it can also bring life. So in, in thinking about how that applies to me, uh, I thought of my wife. I thought, I thought of my wife, Sue. And, you know, see, she, she doesn't just do this for me. I think she does it for a lot of people. But my wife always sees the best and speaks the best about people. More importantly, she always speaks the best about me, at least in public. See, there are times that we've had hard, difficult, sometimes intense discussions, but they usually don't last very long because I just say, honey, you can have your opinion and God and I will have ours. And that usually ends the discussion. But seriously, because of what I do, because of what I do, because of the platform I have as a minister, my wife has to be very cautious and careful about the things that she says about me publicly. In over 43 years of public ministry, my wife has never undressed me in public. She has never said a negative thing about me in front of anyone else. And it's not because I don't have any faults, because I do. She just chooses to love and honor me, not because I deserve it, but because of the grace and forgiveness that Jesus extended her. And she offers that to me. Furthermore, furthermore, Yes, she's my greatest critic, but she's also my greatest cheerleader. Sometimes I don't feel like I'm a very good pastor, but she's always been encouraging to me, cheering me on, telling me that, no, you, you are a good husband, you are a good pastor, a good father to our five children, a good gramps to our 14, soon to be 16 grandkids. Maybe you never thought about this before, but think about it. All of you eat, from, eat fruit from a tree that my wife began watering in me over 44 years ago when we got married. I just I thought about that. You guys are eating fruit from a tree that my wife is watering inside of me through her, through her encouragement, with the power of her tongue encouraging me along the way. See, not only that, we're here today, literally, we're here today, not because of my great preaching, I, I said, we're here today, not because of my great preaching, but because of my wife. And I've shared this story before, how a couple of months after we started serving here at the church, 
we, were, we had a board member over to the house and his family, and we, we were talking after, after we had dinner. And in the course of our conversation, I made the comment about how I was a little surprised that the church voted us in, because if you know the story, when we came up here to, to preach, to be voted on, the sermon I preached was an hour and 15 minutes long. <laughs> And so, you know, who knew, you know, right? So anyway, but, uh, so anyway, I was, t- I was telling this board member, I said, you know, I'm kind of surprised because, you know, I-, I preached that long sermon and he didn't skip a beat. His response was, oh, we didn't hire you because of your preaching. He said, we hired you because of her. And he pointed over at my wife who was sitting with his wife in the kitchen. Literally, we are here today because of my wife, because of my wife. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. By the way, that's what I try to do with you each week. I try to speak hope and encouragement into your life. I don't need to tell you who you are. You know who you are. You know what you did last week. You know what you did last night. You bunch of heathen sinners, right? You know you're sinners. I don't need to tell you that. I want to tell you what you can become. Sin's what you did. That's not who you are. I want to tell you who you can become. I I want to tell you you can know God, that you can find freedom, you can discover purpose, and you can make a difference. Because life and death are in the power of the tongue. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. Bow your heads and let me pray for you. Lord, help us understand the power of our tongue and the words that we speak. Especially this week, Lord. Give us us grace and faith to surrender our tongue to you. And give us wisdom to to use our tongue and the words we speak in in a way that would build up your people and build up your kingdom. Not destroy your kingdom or destroy someone else. Help us be good stewards of that powerful, powerful thing that you've given us called our tongue. And while your heads are bowed, for some of you, it's not just your tongue you need to surrender to God. Some of you need to surrender your life to God. Because as long as you're controlling your life, you're going to struggle with guilt and shame and fear and condemnation. But the moment you surrender your life to him, to Jesus Christ, and receive the forgiveness that God offers you through Jesus, And by the way, he's already paid for your sins. He's already paid for your sins. You just need to receive it by faith. How? How? By asking Jesus to forgive you of your sins and inviting him to come into your your life, into your heart. So if that's you, it would be my honor to lead you in a prayer of surrender to Jesus. Just pray this simple prayer. Say, Lord, I know my life is broken. I know I can't fix it because I've tried. Forgive me for my sins those things that I've done that have separated me from you and hindered, hindered your plan and purpose for my life. And right now, I choose to surrender my life to you, Lord, and I receive your life in return. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me begin living my life for you from this day forward. In Jesus' name.